Hello and welcome to CX Conversations. This is your host Vivek bringing you CX lessons from CX leaders from around the world. Today in CX Conversations, I am talking about how to design customer-centric organizations for sustainable growth. Customer centricity is more than just a management fad. It is the way you do business. While the idea sounds quite intuitive, you'd be surprised how many organizations forget this as they grow. The good news is organizations can redesign themselves to become customer centric. To talk about that, I am joined by today's guest, Heidi Beats. Heidi is a serial enterprise business architect and growth advisor. She's currently an enterprise architect at Flight Center Travel Group, a business travel consultant group. She also serves on the board of Architecture Thinking Association, a cross-disciplinary association. A career that spans two decades of services, she has worked with a variety of companies across engineering, banking, insurance, and the travel sector. Heidi has been a transformative business architect working towards improving customer experience and achieving sustainable growth for organizations. She's an innovative strategist who strives to strike the right balance between strategy, innovation, and business optimization. One of her favorite quotes is by Benjamin Franklin, which goes, when you're finished changing, you are finished. A well-rounded professional and out-of-the-box thinker, a passionate strategist, I'm delighted to have Heidi on my podcast for this conversation. Heidi, welcome to CX Conversations. Hi, Vivek, and thanks so much for having me. I really I genuinely appreciate you asking me to talk about a couple of my favorite topics. And look, the business landscape globally is changing so vastly and at such a rapid pace that I'm really excited to be able to share some of the experiences I've had with you and your listeners. And I'm so excited to be talking to you today. So let's start by understanding what is enterprise business architecture? Could you please talk about what that is and share with us what you do as a business architect as well? Sure. Business architecture is a subset of enterprise architecture, and it's a collection of tools, frameworks, and methods uh, as a discipline to help you elicit, capture, and understand, and even translate the business strategy into executable chunks or components so that they can actually be delivered and it really involves helping the business to understand what capabilities they need to be good at, great at, or even stop doing in order to achieve their strategic objectives. So it's done traditionally through the domain layers of business, information, applications, and technology. So enterprise business architecture is the business domain component within enterprise architecture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I come from a software background, Heidi, mm-hmm. and pardon me if I'm getting confused, In the software world, there is someone who's called an enterprise architect, and that person essentially is architecting the software for an enterprise. I I know this is more on the software side, but is there a correlation between the enterprise architect in the software world and the enterprise business architect? Or are these two very different things? Uh, They're they're related, um, but they're slightly different. So traditionally, TOGAF, which is the open group architecture framework, and there's also the Zachman method, that's more aligned to delivering software. And uh, it's done 
Traditionally, within context of a project, when, you're, when you've got a remit to change something or build something. But now, with greater emergence of business architecture, and business architecture is a greater subset of the overall enterprise architecture, it's really focusing in on what the business is trying to deliver from a strategy point of view. And management consultants or st- strategic management consultants have been using capability-based planning and value stream mapping, which is a, the um, main tools of business architecture. They've been using this for decades. So they've actually got a lot of the same frameworks and tools. It's just repackaged to fit within the um, architecture world to be able to link through to technology. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. Could you please elaborate on how the business architecture discipline helps build customer centricity in an organization? Yeah. So there's a little bit of a contradiction with these terms because, and you've just touched on it before, because it's very much aligned to software development. So more mature EA practices work together with customer experience practices. The methodologies from architecture point of view, they aren't actually centred at all around the customer. So um, many of them don't even feature the customer. They might have them represented as an actor or an object, um, but not actually as a as a whole sentient being with thoughts, feelings, and actions, or or an organisation that has um, humans working for it. So forging these two methods that don't traditionally fit together and finding that common ground. So being able to really take that customer centric view and and fit the architecture around the design. So that's really how it should hang together. And this is really a new wave of architecture and and trying to bring empathy into the architecture because architecture itself doesn't have empathy. It's a flat view of what the business does or should do and tails into how it should do it. So this is a different, different way of doing that. And the ideal flow of it is to really tie together from strategy, articulation and decomposition. So the architecture component of helping the business to to articulate and decompose the strategy. That's more of an architecture function. And then from a design point of view, really understanding what those objectives are about and then looking at the end-to-end experiences for your suppliers, your customers and your employees, looking at those as a stack and that should inform what we do with the architecture. That's quite interesting. And I'm, I'm also curious to learn a bit more about how do you go about doing that and and I've got a bunch of other questions that's popping up in, in my head, like at what stage in an, in an organization's life cycle should they engage in this kind of an exercise? Or is it something that at the onset itself, an organization should start considering how do you architect your business and, and then also bring in the aspect of uh, the experience design as well? I'll ask those questions, but I, I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned, bringing the empathy in the architecture. How is that being done? That's quite interesting. So it's really being able to tie together the experience design and the information that we have about customers, suppliers and employees and making sure we're representing that the architecture is how we actually deliver on those experiences the term architecting empathy, it's a bit of a oxymoron with the words coming together, but it's really the architecture is how you actually bring those experiences to life. It sounds like you're working with a pretty wide canvas and you're bringing in data from different disciplines, mm. from design, from service planning, as mm-hmm. well as business architecture. As a business architect, how are you getting all of this data together? Because from the perspective of our listeners also, mm-hmm. I guess it would help them understand if you can lay this out with an example, 
in an organization as to how you are getting all of the different pieces of information mm-hmm. that is then coming together into you doing whatever you are going to do with the information that you get. And I just wanted to, um, before I get into the answer on that, you never operate in isolation. So it wouldn't be operating as a business architect in a vacuum solo. Um, sure. So it's, it's always part of an ecosystem within the organisation, really understanding who, who your internal stakeholders are and really understanding using evidence to, to understand what business pain points and opportunities are you looking to address as well as the customer pain points and opportunities. So you really need to be informed by any source of information that you have available to you. So having having access to great information is key. And also with architecture, there's, there's definitely the mechanical engineering type models and boxes on a page with the arrows between. That's part of it. They're the tools, but, but really you need to understand what are these outcomes that we're looking to drive what, informa- uh, what decisions are you looking to help executives make? How do you actually help the business run fast but safely um, with informed decisions? So that's really, that, that's the proof in the pudding. So as long as you go in, not just saying I'm going to do this model, but really understanding why am I here, what am I helping the business with and what do the customers need from us to be able to want to engage with us and really being customer-centric as a practitioner as, um, as a starting point to be able to be customer-centric. All right. So to summarize and more or less to check if I've got this right, mm-hmm. what you're saying is that obviously you do not operate in a silo and you bring together certain objectives that the business has mm-hmm. that needs to be achieved through a, a very systematic design process and architecting it in a way that clearly shows the business leaders how something is going to get done mm-hmm. and what all information is going to be needed is also something I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but while you were saying, I was thinking the entire exercise would also surface certain missing pieces of information that might be required for you to make certain decisions in your architecture design. Mm -hmm. And that might already be present with the organization or it might have to conduct some kind of research, some kind of survey or or some level of understanding or developing that data uh, through their interactions with the customers, partners, suppliers, or employees, and getting all of that information together to then lay it over the the architecture that has been put together to finally showing very clearly that this is how something is going to get done for the business objective to be um, achieved. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I'll just elaborate on that a little bit. Um, So you really want to be able to, um, I'll just reference Tom Graves, uh, who's been a massive influence on uh, certainly my career. But he he talks about the inside out and outside in and the layers of that within architecture. So I've embraced that very holistically when when I'm approaching gathering information. So you, you really want to understand against the value streams. So at each value stream stage, you really want to understand What's the internal metric for this? Where are the break points or process delays? Where do we have system outages? Or um, do we have partners that can't deliver on SLAs or something like that? So what are our internal type metrics where we can't actually deliver on what we're promising or where we've got delays or uh, unnecessary friction or complexity? Then, and, and really understanding why. So is it from technical debt or workarounds or is it a bad agreement that we're not 
you know, there's a bunch of different root causes. So just really taking the time to understand that before you go straight into designing what the new world's going to look like. So that's only half of the picture. You really want to understand for different customer segments and personas that you've worked on that you're going to use for design, you really want to understand how happy are the customers with this part of the process or this product or service that they're consuming. Also, what's their net promoter score? That's not always the best measure, but I'll mention it. Um, But how satisfied are they with the service that they're getting? Have you retained them over a certain amount of time? Are they repeat customers? And also, are they a detractor uh, or an advocate for your brand? So are they actually actively complaining about you somewhere? And just being mindful of that. But then also to look at capabilities that underpin these value stream stages, really uh, you need quantitative and qualitative research to understand what are your competitors doing? What are people doing abroad, not just in your local backyard, but what are the competitor landscape doing? What regulatory change has come through or is likely to be coming through for that particular set of capabilities? And also, what are your customer expectations? Are we over-delivering in this space? Or just, just being aware of that and looking at that as a whole Having having the business architecture to anchor these pieces of information to, to be able to look at it holistically, so outside in and inside out together, that's really powerful. Wonderful. And, and then, there was another point that you mentioned. I'm sorry I'm interrupting, but it's okay. important that we kind of bring that in also because you've talked a bunch about customer satisfaction and information quantitative as well as qualitative information about the different aspects of a customer's experience through the services and the products that that they are um, kind of interacting with in your organization and bringing the empathy in the design process. I think all of that is also going to develop the empathy towards the customer as a human being and what they are experiencing and feeling through their journey. I missed the question part. Sorry. It isn't a question. It's more like I'm trying oh, to cool. bring that back to the entire idea of uh, making sure that empathy is there in the process because architecture as it is might sound a very engineering word and, and might lack empathy. Yes. When you're bringing in the customer satisfaction information as well as the the quantitative information of Net Promoter Score plus identifying and grouping your customers through promoters, passes and detractors, whatnot, whatnot. And bringing back the qualitative information of what they're saying in their interactions with the with your organization, all of that can also help you build the empathy. Definitely. And being evidence-driven and having the data to prove the way that you're coming at it with design and architecture takes the ego or the individual that's the employee that's involved in the change. It, it removes their individual desires over and above the collective requirements for the business and the customers. So that is so important to be able to lift out. It doesn't matter what I think or what you think. Let's be guided by the evidence and let's understand what people are actually saying because I guess I'll just zoom out from what we're talking about just to elaborate on this point. So in my experience, customer centricity is really um a lot of different organisations and individuals come at it from a very different lens. So what I I just wanted to touch on, I don't think it's about running a design sprint and creating the beautiful high-resolution designs, and again, some which never get delivered because people, the design people and technology people have different requirements and mindsets. It's not just ticking a portfolio 
gate checkbox when we need funding. And it's not, it's not using staff as a proxy for customer or assuming that subject matter expertise or seniority and tenure mean that you automatically know what your customer wants. So that, I don't want to be negative, but that arrogance um, or posture, design posturing and only looking at blue sky thinking is, is how I see a lot of customer centricity more broadly when I have conversations with people. That's the feedback that I continue to get. And uh, I've seen it for to, to different levels um, throughout my my entire career. That's a very interesting point, actually, Heidi. And I'm going to sure. actually dive a little deeper into that because that's something that I keep uh, getting back as well. And I'm sure there are reasons for people to have that kind of a bias. But how do you deal with that? Well, personally, I look to the who's leading in this field. I mean, I'm, I'm not um, Robinson Caruso doing this stuff uh, I l- I've learned from many peers and and uh, I loved learning from other organizations who are who are doing really well in this space so USAA is definitely the, the the benchmark for me in customer centricity and I've done a bit of research and understood it's because they are aligning their business architecture and, and customer journeys but it's not just within service delivery they've fit their business model around that so they've actually changed how they operate in, a, in alignment with what makes sense to the customer. So they're actually, um, the way that they do business and have structured and their remuneration is all, all fit around understanding the customer and aligning their whole business to that and walking the talk rather than just ticking a box or doing an activity. Um, and the thing that I love about what they do is they're not forcing their organisational complexity or technical debt into the journey and it should be completely invisible to the customer so, and I look at what what do a lot of large organisations need to do to get to that level? It's really hard because there's such complex systems and what, what companies used to do for so long that's gotten them to where they are today might not work anymore. So, it's just being relentlessly honest and evidence-based to understand where are we actually at in alignment to true customer centricity because without that honesty... An acceptance that there's change required, it's very hard to do this in a bubble. And if you look at it, it's really a cultural overhaul. So it's how you understand um, and value and connect with your customers, supply chain partners and employees. So customer centricity is the strategy. It's not an activity or set of ceremonies that you do. And it's also how you define value and measure success, which is tied into people's remuneration as well. What you're actually rewarding, yeah, and and do you need to rethink that? Are you automating in the right places, and have you actually made it easier for your customers, or are you making it easier for your 12 month return on investment, or or for project delivery? These kinds of questions. So it's it's also it goes broader than that. It's how you um, how you design your organisation, and, and and have you uh, it's how you empower leadership to be servant leadership. And so it makes space for, for the creatives and technology experts to be able to run uh, in an empowered way. So that, mm. that whole leadership structure, this what I'm talking about changes that whole uh, model and dynamic. So it's also how you fund and plan for change. Um, so that, that's all linked to finance. And the, the biggest part of all, it's, um, it's staying curious, data-driven, but being yep. part of a, a continual evolution so it uh, so it's not it's not business as usual anymore. It's change as usual. So how you actually 
um, embracing that constant change so that you're not burning your people out or, um, or releasing minimum viable product to the point it's eroding your core business. All right, that's great. So I'm again curious about what, what kind of businesses would need a business architect at what stage in a business? Because you've almost like killed this question by saying that this cannot be an activity or a project that is done once or, or twice a year. But I'm just, I'm still kind of curious at, at what stage in a business um, or is it like at this at this age and time, almost every business needs to relook at their business uh, design and, and just um, redo the entire approach of doing business and bring in customer centricity as the core um, philosophy for their organization. I'll start by touching on, I don't think you necessarily need a person with the title of business architect. You can have mm -hmm. people, different people from different parts of the business contributing to the business architecture without having to have that title. So I see that as skills rather than a role. So it's um, because okay. you, it's a, the way that it's going, you, you really need multidisciplinary people which bring together the org design, finance and success measurements, KPI, strategy, formulation and execution, yeah, all, all different parts of technology. So I think having it as a role isn't necessarily required, although at larger organisations that haven't come through in the, the digital economy, they're going to need more help to mm -hmm. change. Um, but that's not just architecture. So change enterprise change management is definitely something that is vital to the success of that. So, And just to answer your question, so I deviated a little mm -hmm. bit, um, I think uh, any any old older uh, incumbent in an industry where they've had success and are starting to have flat growth, if they're plateauing or their customers are leaving or are disengaged, they definitely could benefit from these methods. Um, and also, mm -hmm. um, but having good practice um, to be able to, to keep dynamic change within your business, it really, it, any organisation could benefit from that. And there's also, um, I guess, a more, it's a similar principles, but in a different context. So for startups looking to scale up and, um, so to make sure that you're not having growing pains where you've where, where you've grown to your own detriment, um, I think that's it's good. And you you don't necessarily need it as mm. a business architect. It could be a consultant um, or or even a board member, so someone on, yeah. on an advisory board to help grow um, in a more sustainable way and put things like governance, uh, structure, and um, and process in place to be able to to grow without busting at the seams. Um, so that's that's the um, the couple of niche use cases, I think. Yeah, understood. So in a sense, what you're saying is irrespective of the size of an organization, if at any stage an organization is kind of a little stuck and wants to go to the next stage or discover a new uh, way to grow, then this could be an exercise um, that can help them get unstuck and, and move forward. I'll even be bold enough to say I think you need uh, this, this thinking and alignment in some form just to stay in business nowadays. I only just saw um, a few articles in the last couple of weeks 
uh, about how many companies are getting acquired, um, how many are becoming bankrupt or, um, you know, so there's a lot of companies disappearing. So I guess you need to invest in this stuff. It's not a Band-Aid. It's a way of doing business. It's Mm. a way of sustaining your business, your core business. So it's not, it's not we need to transform, we've got one target state in mind and we need to do a project or a program. This is just how we do business now. So I see it as integral, but not necessarily um, not necessarily required within an architecture practice for all organisations. Got it. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. So how do you, how do you specifically look at customer experience design in this process? And it would be great if you could share some sort of a case study from your experience. Sure. Um, so at a um, financial services organisation I worked at um, some uh, s- several years ago, uh, I got brought in, they'd said, right, we need a business architect, but not sure why. I think a consultant had suggested it, but they weren't sure what business architecture was or what to do with it or how to use the outputs of it. So they said, we think we want end-to-end process and we... Um, we want base processes and we're doing, we think we need to do a transformation. So um, when I spent a bit of time just uh, understanding what they, what their pain points were and what they were intending to do, I said, actually, I think you need a stack. So it's, you, you can't, because if you ask process people, they're going to say we need a process. If you ask design people, they're going to say you need a design. Mm-hmm. If you ask a technology person, you're going to need a, an arch- solution architecture yep. or, you know, insert other ones here. So we really need to look at all of these um, as as a stack. So look at all of these different layers. So that consisted of, um, and I worked with some very talented um, customer experience and research people, and we really came together to deliver end-to-end journeys. So mm-hmm. I stood back and th- said, actually, I, I remember looking at the process catalogue saying, these aren't services. We really need to think. I, I do what I call a grandma test. So... <laughs> If I if I were to get my grandma to ask me what she wanted to do mm-hmm. or what what she wanted us to do for her, how would she describe it? So, what's the most simplistic language that's um, that that makes it easy for a customer to articulate what they what service they're trying to consume to be able to create this experience? Mm-hmm. And then you need to validate that because it's not what I think. It's not what I think my grandma would think. Yeah. It's really what customers actually think. So you need to talk to people outside of the organisation that aren't as close to the content. So from that, you've got a service catalogue and it's linked through um, it, It's linked through to the process layer. Then you say, right, well, which, which channels are we operating through and how does this work through our supply chains, partnerships, and what which what things do our employees do to create the to execute these services or deliver these services to create these experiences? And then you need to have a look at right what's going on for the customer because we've taken an insular view, but that in isolation is I won't say useless, but it's only part of the picture. Mm-hmm. So you really need to understand what are our customers telling us, how are they behaving, and what are the trends that are happening? What are our um, our competitors doing? So from that, just understanding um, what's actually their life cycle and the, the life cycle stages within that and, and understanding um, for this particular client, it was like a cradle to grave type view. Yep. So there'll be things that we, that there'll be life events within life cycle phases. Some life events are independent of a life cycle phase, but really understanding how are we actually meeting 
the so using the strategizer tool set and IDEO tool set to um to understand how are we actually meeting these life events and are, are our services that we're executing relevant and and are we doing them at the right time have we made it easy so there's a bunch of different services that are consumed to create an experience so have we actually how, how do we build what's happening in the technology and information space and process layer around that that interaction between or that handshake between a set of services being customer services being consumed and an, an, um, an experience being created for that customer. And there's often a lot of people, it's interesting when you say customer experience, yeah. a lot of people automatically assume that you mean the customer experience design, but there's also the customer experience management, which is more, I'd call that customer engagement um, management. So really not just coming up with the designs, but actually when you what, what are people actually doing? How do you map out that actual journey? Not this is what a persona went through, this is what we think based on research and design agencies or design activities. But what are our what are those end-to-end -end customer journeys actually looking like? So how are they actually behaving and how do you string together those those interactions um, and see this plus this equals this and, and really derive good insights from that. So um, you, you should consider that aspect when you're designing for the customer. So it's not just this blue sky thinking, but how are we actually going to put this um, in place as a service delivery mechanism, but actually be able to measure the customer experiences as they are happening and course correct. Yeah, that sounds sounds about quite complicated as well as <laughs> that's, that's going to take uh, quite a bit of time. Uh, while mm. I, I would also say that this would feed, you've touched upon customer service and, and also on other aspects of customer engagement. And I was thinking, how is this going to also feed into product um, or, or the core value prop of an organization for, for its customers. And I guess the experience also is driven, uh, I think majority of the experience is driven by what the organization is delivering for its customers. So in this financial services example or the case study that you were talking about, did you guys go back to the products? Uh, you mentioned this financial services company is uh, providing services from cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. Were there some insights that came out and that suggested that certain products need to be shelved or changed? I'm curious if if so, if you got into that uh, situation and what did you do? Definitely. So through this, um, we were doing a business transformation program of work. So we, we'd um, come out with a bunch of different ideas that were like, they're not in scope for for this set of initiatives that we're lining up, but we mm -hmm. should definitely look at these. So, I, and I just want to touch on, a, to, um, mention to you that the pain that we had in coming up with a meta model to align all of our worlds, it was, it, it was excruciating for us all to see each other's point of view and to move through I that with grace that. and respect. Just <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, um, it, it was very difficult and challenging, but once you nail that and you're all on the same page, you're on the same side. You're, it's yeah. it's you against the the competitors, and that's that's a a, a magnificent um, outcome. 
and, and also with the product, so yeah, we use the strategizer toolkits um, for the value proposition to understand. Uh, so I guess it's a two-way check. So you've got your current products and services that, that we offer the customer, and then you're validating to say, is this actually what customers want? So that's a, that's a very internal check that we did based on what we have to work with. But then there's a, the, if, you, if you check the other way, the inverse of that is, this is what customers are telling us that they want, and this is where they're disengaged. Therefore, these are the opportunity space. This is the opportunity space that that's presented itself based on evidence and research. So, where are we falling short on that, and what do we need to change? So that fed more of an innovation pipeline of ideas. But here's the thing: that comes out of a different pocket of money at most organisations. So you need to be able to. So innovation. A lot of people it, um, that I come across, uh, it, it's confusing with. Um, the term innovation is sometimes used as creative, creative problem solving for yeah. something that we already do. So in my mind, well, that's just a cool way to improve yeah. it, um, how I... And mostly innovation is also associated with technology for yeah. some reason. And uh, you, you raise an interesting point. So with when you say product, uh, my mind immediately went to, are you talking about, because in the digital economy and more digital business transformation... People talk about product management, but they're talking about an application manager, so the product owner that manages the backlog and life cycle of that product. So, yeah, but I wasn't meaning that. Mm-mm. Yeah, I was thinking more from the financial services business perspective, that business would have several products. Perfect. And some of them may be digital, some of them, and most of them might not be digital. And. Yeah, with with um, with those innovation ideas to to create new products and services, um, you you really need to work with um, pe- people like data scientists um, and innovation specialists, which also are cust- a lot of innovation is customer experience design enabled by technology. Um, so yeah. we should go design first, uh, but it's really working with data scientists to look at all the data points that you have and understand how people behaving today and how they're likely to behave because you're looking for how to solve the customer problems. So if you've come up with a bunch of different things that customers need help with um, through these and you're validating those with data scientists, then you've got, a, you've got a really nice backlog of innovation ideas that you should be able to proof up and test, test and invest in or burn. Mm, sounds interesting. Now, apart from dealing with all of these massive data sets and kind of bringing all of them together, what have been your biggest challenges and roadblocks in, in building customer-centric transformations for businesses? Uh, so it's all down to the human aspect. So the technology part, uh, you know, um, changing technology is easy is easy in comparison to the human changes. So when you're looking at an organisation and customers and employees and all of the supply chain, you're dealing with people that have got their own lives going on. They're impacted by the change. You know, they might have something to gain or lose from that. So this, And that's within each individual person. They've got their own stuff going on. They've got their own feelings about this stuff. So it's really being able to tap in in a respectful way yeah. um, and engage people in the right way. And I, I've got to say, uh, coming from working in technology for quite a long time, I know that technology people don't always get that right. So we need lots of help um, from 
from people in change management, HR. It's really understanding, not just empathising with our customers, but empathising with our employees. So um, understanding how this is actually going to impact them on a day-to-day basis or the anxiety of not knowing what's next um, and, and really being mindful and respectful of that. So you can't do change at people or to them. You need to do it with them. So even just involving them, it, um, regardless of what the outcome uh, is going to be eventually after transformation, you just need to be really respectful that people have the capacity to make or break these initiatives. True. And I was just going to add... Heidi, that in such cases, and especially when you're when you're dealing with people, you can you can never be hundred percent right from the perspective that what might sound like a good solution for one person might not be a good fit for other. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that case, are you learning while you're doing such transformations and adjusting along the way, or is it doing a bunch of research first and then getting into action mode? And then changing course yeah. along the way. How how does it typically work? I think anyone that said that they get this right is is a liar. So um, <laughs> I I certainly have learned a lot. Um, sometimes you come up with something that's such a logical fit, but it's a it's a um, it's a heart decision or a, it's a something that's emotive. So your logic doesn't apply here. Mm. And I you know I, I'm still learning in that space. I, I won't claim to be an expert in that and I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, so it's it's really, I don't think you can analyse how people are going to react as well. Like you can do prep, preparation and understand, but it's really being, and I still work at this, trying to be a better listener and just understanding um, what the impacts are because a, a lot of the people, I mean, these organisations have got incredible people working in them, really smart resources. So there's, it's always there's always a risk of being coming in. I've got I've done this before. I've got the answers and the arrogance of saying this is what can work. And mechanically, yeah, it probably can, but you you sometimes it's not going to because the culture's different or um, it's going to upset the local market or you know there's so many considerations and and I'm sure we've all got a, a case studies as long as your arm about this of where where it goes wrong. Um, so it's just learning and, and being being more mindful of uh, the change and the impacts that that's likely to have. So just thinking that through, but talking to people. Um, what I love to see is when these transformations are going on, particularly with restructures or transformations, I love to see senior executives walk the floor and just say, hey, I'm here, talk to me. <laughs> you know, I'm here with you in it. And, and just be visible and present and, and you know, have a duty of care for, for the changes that we're making because these are changing people's lives, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. So um, just being respectful of that and, and being available to be able to hear what's going on and give people that opportunity to, to provide feedback and input because... It's the you see so many times, and um, and I've been part of this myself. You come into an organisation as an external consultant or as an as an employee, but to do transformation, and you're disrupting the whole business. And you know, you, you, how can you possibly know the impact of changing X, Y, Z? What what ramifications that's going to have? So you really need to talk to the people that have been doing this for a long time. There's yeah. no way around that. Yeah, definitely, and. and 
it's great that you mentioned that point about the executives walking in the office mm-hmm. uh, and just being communicative with their teams because that's going to be a make or break situation honestly it's it's the leaders that have to show uh, in their behavior that this is something that's required and we are behind this and we are with you in this journey mm-hmm. so i'm sure that's going to have a huge impact and i honestly believe the mark of a, a great leader is having the courage to walk the floor on a go live or one month after a go live six months after a go live at at regular intervals and just say hey I know we did this project. How's it going? How's it impacting you? And go be there. Talk to them. The pay grade or the seniority shouldn't negate being able to understand the impacts of the changes that you're directing. So that definitely, that that focus on employee experience and actually go talk to them after it's gone live. How did it go? Where could I have gone better? And having that humility to go have that conversation and actually listen and, and do something with that. Um, that's the mark of of the leadership of the future, I think. Wonderful. In that case, I, I should I flip this around and say that if that's not happening, that could become your biggest challenge and roadblock. Well, uh, within within delivery, it's one aspect, but there's so many other factors. <laughs> okay. I think All right. it, it's that it's that relentless pursuit of understanding where you're actually at as an organization and and where your people are at Mm, and what your customers think. So uh, while you've kind of peppered so many interesting insights and tips through our conversation, but uh, as a last question, if you have a word of advice to business leaders when they are considering a customer-centric business transformation, Mm -hmm. what would be that? Hire experts and serve them in a servant leadership capacity. So help clear the way, clear the path for them, hook them up with the right people to talk to and empower them and step back. Just because you're in a higher pay band or have a bigger remit doesn't necessarily mean you're an expert in transformation, in technology, in customer experience and design and insights. So uh, it's, it's about hire the right people empower them, make sure they're connected, set them up for success, but don't dictate what the outcome's going to look like because then you're not evidence-driven and you're going to manipulate the outcome and you might be disappointed with the end result. Well, that's wonderful. And with that, we've also come to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank you once again, Heidi, for sharing so openly on this podcast. I'm sure our listeners are going to love this. Thanks, Vivek. I really appreciated your time. Thank you. And to all our listeners, this is Vivek signing off from another CX Conversations. Until next time, bye.